If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 21. Gospel of Luke and chapter 21. If you're in a Scripture journal, I believe that's on page 150. If you don't have a Scripture journal, we still have two available there on the welcome desk. So uh, feel free to grab that if you would like one and feel it'd be valuable as we continue to explore this series, which, God willing, will take us through spring, okay? Um, Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We looked at verses 5 through 28 in our time together last week. And so today, we're going to look at verses 29 through 36. Luke 21, 29 through 36. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well, if you wish. If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Let's read this together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, starting verse 29. Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, and he told Jesus, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. If the apocalypse happened in your lifetime, how do you think you'd fare? This is the question that was asked in a survey conducted this past year, and the results are interesting to say the least. Surveyors found that a third of Americans, so about 34%, believe they could be the sole survivor of the apocalypse. The survey also explored, why do you think that, right? And the people thought of themselves and, and said that they believe there's, they have strong survival skills. Okay, these are Americans being questioned, by the way. Strong survival skills and adaptability. This isn't all that surprising considering that researchers over the last 20 years have also found that the reason that the zombie genre of uh, apocalyptic media had become so popular was because people enjoyed watching and putting themselves in the shoes of the characters and then visualizing what they would do in those situations. In the survey where many believe they'd survive the apocalypse, about 30% of those surveyed see themselves as the underdog of the apocalypse, while more respondents believe that they're the top dog who would undoubtedly survive it all. How would you guys do? Yeah. According to, <laughs> according to survey takers, they, they asked them too, what would be your ideal survival team, okay, <laughs> and that help you survive the apocalypse? And the, the biggest answers were Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Chuck Norris, Superman, John Cena, and MacGyver, okay? A couple wrestlers and some fictional characters, right? The survey also found that there are three in 10, so 29% of U.S. adults think that it's likely that there will be an apocalypse in their lifetime. But less than 20% say that they have a plan for such an occurrence, so people are divided over what they think the apocalypse, well, the cause will be, right? Many say it will come at the hands of some kind of global pandemic. Uh, others say climate change, right? Others believe the end will come because of, like, nuclear war. Now, if you put all the data together, what do you find? You find that, regardless of the cause of the apocalypse, many people believe they can survive it, while also believing it will happen during their lifetimes. Yet, they're not prepared, you see, the lack of preparation for the end is due to many factors, of course. Some, even those who say they believe the end will happen in their lifetime, don't really believe that. Others likely feel as if there's really nothing they can do in the event of an apocalyptic type event, right? However, there is a particular group of people thinking and preparing 
for the end. Apart from, you know, these so-called doomsday preppers, you remember that show? The wealthiest people in the world are trying to come up with a plan for some kind of end time, end of the world type event. Uh, This theorist, Douglas Rushkoff, for example, tells of how he was asked by a group of billionaires to uh, address how they could prepare should the end of the world happen in their lifetime. And so they peppered him with questions, these billionaires, and they asked things like, where should we build our bunker? Uh, Should we start a new settlement in the middle of the ocean? Uh, Should they be investing in cryptocurrency? But as billionaires Rushkoff was speaking to began to despair, Rushkoff, he couldn't help but laugh, and he said this. I think this is important. He says, here were the wealthiest, most powerful people I had ever met, yet they felt utterly powerless to influence the future. He said he'd ask them, for example, if they thought about how to pay for their security guards once the world was over and their money was worthless, and they'd all open their little moleskin notepads and write, figure out how to pay security guards after money is worthless. It's interesting, isn't it, that there seems to be something written on every human conscience that knows that there is an end. All people seem to know deep down that everything is going somewhere, that life on earth doesn't last forever. No matter who you are or how much power, money, and control you seem to have, you're helpless to the end of all things. But then you hold on to that truth in the one hand, and you look at the other hand, and it seems to be grasping at nothing. And by what I mean by that is that we all have this truth that we are heading for a day of reckoning written on our hearts as humans, and yet we live as if there isn't one. We believe the end is drawing nigh, yet we do little to prepare for it. Now, in the text before us this morning, we see Jesus continue his discourse during Holy Week about the end of the world. And he reminds the disciples and us of important truths in light of what we all know that we just mentioned, which is that history is heading somewhere, that the world is going to eventually come to an end, that there is a day of reckoning for all people, and that it can happen at any time. Let's recall where we've been, okay? Since our text appears at the tail end of Jesus' discourse about the temple's future and the end of time. So this is the setting that Jesus is saying these things about. As Jesus and his disciples are near the temple, perhaps in the temple precinct, um, still like they were in verses one through four, or perhaps they're on the Mount of Olives and they could clearly see the temple across the valley. Some remark about how lovely the temple with its adornments of bright white stones and gold and various ornaments is. To this, Jesus says, yes, but it will all be destroyed. A startling thing to hear indeed, for the temple, as we noted last week, was the religious and economic center of the nation. Jesus prophesies total destruction of both the temple and the city of Jerusalem. It will be encircled, says Jesus, and judgment of God will come upon them. Jesus tells them that when these things will happen, which we know from history, they happened, right? In 70 AD, just as Jesus said they would. And when you are persecuted, and when you see wars and earthquakes and messianic pretenders, you will think the end has come, but those things do not mean it is time for the end of the age. That's what he said. But then, if you look at your text, Jesus does jump to the end of the age in verses 25 through 28 by saying that the end of the age will be unmissable, unmistakable, and cosmic. For those who are not Christian, it will be a time of terror as Jesus comes to be their judge. For Christians, however, it will be a time of rejoicing because Jesus' return means their vindication and consummation of the kingdom of God. So now, where you and I live in history is between ages. We live between advents, don't we? Between Jesus' first advent in what we celebrate at Christmas and his second advent of his return. So we live looking back and forward. We look back at what Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, and we look forward of his setting up the eternal new heavens and new earth. We look back at his bringing the kingdom and forward to his bringing the kingdom in fullness. 
We look back at his taking his seat as ruler of all things and forward to his rule where he puts all of his enemies under his feet, where every knee that's ever been created will bend it to Jesus, where every tongue that's ever existed will use it to profess that he is cosmic Lord. So the question the disciples asked in verse 7 regarding some time frame in which the end would come is not answered. Instead, the question implied by Jesus that is answered is this, how then should we live? If we're between these two ages, how should we live in light of our location between the times? This is an important question, isn't it? For some will conclude that since the end is drawing nigh and there's nothing we can do about it, we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live it up. Enjoy life. Others wonder, should we head for the hills and sell our stuff and await the Lord's arrival? Uh, We do some sort of work to hasten Jesus' return. What do we do? How should we live? Now, thankfully, we're not left in the dark because this text tells us how we should live in light of the impending end of the age. It tells us how to live in between the already and the not yet. So let's explore this text. Let's just walk through it, okay? And let's see what lessons the Lord has for us about the end of the world and how to live in light of his impending arrival, okay? So as noted, the text that immediately precedes the one we are focusing on this morning is about the end of the age. So Jesus went, if you're just following the scope of of, uh, 21 verse 5 to our present text, Jesus went from the temple's end to the persecution of the disciples to Jerusalem falling in the temple, with the temple, and then he jumped ahead at least 2,000 years in the future. And he told us there in 25 through 28, if you just look at your text, you could skim it, that creation itself would come apart to where there would be no doubt about what was occurring. And as if creation coming apart at the seams wasn't sign enough, Jesus himself would come riding on the clouds with authority and power and majesty. And as we said last week, for unbelievers, his arrival would be a terror. For the redeemed, it would be a cause of joy. Now, we turn to a parable in verses 29 through 33. And Jesus uses an easily accessible picture to make his point. Maybe there's a fig tree right next to him that he points to and plucks something off of. He says, look at the fig trees, or really any tree. And when you see leaf and bud, you know that this is a sign that summer is getting close, okay? He says, similarly, when you see what I just described, you will know the kingdom of God is near. You guys with me so far? While Jesus has warned his disciples not to look at things like famines and wars and earthquakes and messianic pretenders and conclude that the end has already arrived, he's saying here that they should see them as reminders that the end is near. So rather than seeing these things, wars, earthquakes, famines, as ways to fill out our end times bingo cards, The disciple is to be both alert and encouraged that the time of consummation is near. Again, think about how God reckons time compared to us. You guys know the verse, for him a thousand years is what? A day. For us, a thousand years is a lot. According to God, who is outside of time, the end of the age has been at hand for 2,000 years, even if it seems delayed to us. Not everything is as it seems, is it? Just as it would seem to the disciples that this beautifully ordained, adorned temple was, a per- was permanent and yet was scheduled for demolition by God, so nearness is not to be reckoned according to our view of time the way that God does. But the lesson of the parable is that when you see wars, and when you see famine, and when you see earthquakes, when you see pain and loss and death and relational struggle and injustice, you need to allow those things to remind you that the end is near. Now listen to what I'm about to say, okay? And the fact that the end is near is fundamentally good news for the disciple. 
How can that be? How could death and pain and loss be a reminder of good news? Because it reminds us that things are not as they were meant to be, but that God's Christ is close at hand. And he will return, and when he returns, he will vindicate his saints, and he will set up an eternal kingdom where there is no war, and where there is no famine, and there is no relational struggle, and there is no pain, and there is no loss or tears or sorrow. Is that how you look at brokenness in the world, I wonder? That we should indeed lament pain and loss, and destruction, and injustice when we see it, or feel it, or sense it. But then what do we do after the lament? Say, lament on its own does very little. It's what follows that counts. So when you see it, do you lament it and move on, or do you allow it to remind you that history is heading towards a sorrowless eternity for those who are Christ, and let that motivate how you live in light of it? You know, many of you might remember March 1980, Mount St. Helens started to rumble. Some of you guys remember that? And it began to emit smoke and ash. Uh, Volcanologists from all over the world, they gathered to watch and measure and wait to see what Mount St. Helens would do. And within a week, earthquakes, plumes of volcanic ash, streams had become so frequent that residents and vacationers in the surrounding areas were forced to evacuate. Everyone left except for one man, and his name was Harry R. Truman, not the president, okay? No relation. You guys remember Harry Truman, by the way? So, see, Harry, he was in his 80s when this happened, uh, had lived for over 50 years on the shores of Spirit Lake, and he was unwilling to leave. He was skeptical about the possibility of an eruption, but if the mountain blew, he wanted to be there. If it buried him, that's where he wanted to die. In the days preceding May 18, 1980, the mountain grew calmer. Though earthquakes continued, their eruptive activity paused. But on the morning of May 18, the mountain woke with no advance warning. An earthquake measuring 5.1 on the Richter scale caused an explosion on its western slope, triggering a massive landslide, the largest recorded in history, and Spirit Lake was deluged with 60 meters of debris from the avalanche, swallowing empty buildings and burying Truman. Now, Truman either ignored the warnings or didn't care if the inevitable happened. The warning signs were there. They were clear and obvious. The words of others fell on deaf ears. Many Christians are like Truman in relation to what Jesus is saying here. The signs are all around that the end draws nigh, but either Christians waste their time with end-time speculation and chart-making, or they just simply lament that bad things happen and then move on and remain unchanged and unmoved. Jesus says these are the wrong approaches. The pains of life, the wars, the natural terrors, the injustice, allow them to remind you that there is an end to all of it coming. And it's coming quickly, and all of it is going somewhere. I mean, in the pains and losses of life, in a world like ours, what does the atheist have to offer by way of comfort? It's okay, because the earth will eventually be eaten by the sun, right? And then you'll be dead, And then there's nothing. You die and then that's it. Are you comforted by that? Only the gospel of Jesus says that the brokenness of the world is evidence that this isn't how it's supposed to be. But that there is a cosmic Christ in route who will make everything right. Now there's a reason for hope, yes? Now, there's a sign that summer is coming and that believers can rest under the shade of that fig tree. Now, there is something we can point ourselves to and others who are struggling or suffering and rest our hopes in. Now, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me use this illustration I'm about to use. And you know what? I'm going to use it again in the future, okay? Because I love it a lot and I'm not very creative, okay? Okay? It's from the book, Can You Imagine, The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And it happens near the end of the book. Now, it takes place after Frodo and his companion Sam finally complete their arduous journey 
and the ring had finally been destroyed at Mount Doom, evil had been vanquished, everything could now be set to right. Well, Sam falls asleep uh, from the exhaustion, and when he wakes up, he sees the wizard Gandalf, who he thought was dead. And Gandalf asks Sam, how do you feel? And this is what Tolkien writes. He says, but Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He asked. He doesn't ask, will there be no more sadness? He asks, will everything sad, what, come untrue? Jesus says, yes. It's not just that Jesus will make everything right. It's that he will make everything, every sad thing come untrue. He will vindicate every pain and prove that no suffering was ultimately meaningless. So whether we see some devastating war, some natural calamity, or someone experience pain and loss, or we experience it ourselves, we should lament, and we should weep with those who weep. And then we should use those circumstances to ask Jesus, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Jesus says at every point, what? Yes. Jesus says, you see these things, then you know the kingdom of God is near. How near? Near enough to know the eternal summer is coming. It was near when Jesus said these words. How much nearer is it 2,000 years later? And it's nearer right now than it was when I started this sermon. Now, Jesus says something in verse 32 that has confounded theologians for centuries. Interpretations about what Jesus means when he says, if you look at your text, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Interpretations abound, okay? Now, I'm going to spare you from all of them, okay? But let me just tell you the, the main ones. Either Jesus meant the generation he was speaking to and was therefore wrong, Right? since they did, in fact, pass away without seeing the end of the age. Or, when he said these things, he was referring to the temple's destruction, and therefore was right, since the temple was destroyed within a generation that he said these words. Or, he was talking about the generation that would be alive when the end of the age would come. And the things described in 25 through 28 are visibly seen by them. Okay, So we could throw out the first one, since Jesus cannot be wrong about anything ever. Two, the second one makes sense, but Jesus appears to be talking about the end of the age in the immediate context, not the destruction of the temple. So I favor the third one. Since Jesus is talking about the end of the age, so that the generation that sees the cosmic events as described in 25 through 28 will remain through them until Jesus closes out the age. In other words, when these cosmic signs of the world coming apart happen, the end will not drag on for many generations, but it will happen within one generation. It will come quickly. But like I said, commentators are divided on this since it's not super clear. So if my interpretation, you think I'm out to lunch on verse 32, that doesn't bother me at all, okay? But what is clear is that the end of the age is coming, that every we, everything we see is impermanent, and therefore, we must hold fast to what we can hold fast to. We hold fast to what is permanent, to what will last. And according to verse 33, what is it that will last? The words of Christ. Jesus says that everything you see, well, you just look around right now. You can look outside the windows. Everything you see, they seem permanent, but they won't last forever. The things that, in fact, look what he says. The, the things that seem most permanent, like the world and the universe, will eventually what? Pass away. But something won't pass away, will it? What is it? Jesus' word. Words that include the promise that he will return and make all things new. Our promises, our promises frequently fail. His will not ever. So the question begs to be asked, in this statement from Jesus, in everything we talked about, I'm going to ask you this. What are you clinging to? Where do you derive truth? 
meaning, purpose, and value? What do you grab a hold of as your hope and sure foundation? Is it the word, which is permanent, or is it something else, which is inevitably not? Everything you see and everything you own is impermanent. Everything you see and everything you own will eventually be gone, relegated, maybe to a memory. Everything you own, you know this, is just on a different level of being garbage. No matter how nice and shiny your house and your cars or your TV or furniture are, they will eventually be dilapidated dumps, fit for destruction or turned into one of those little cubes in the landfill. You know, if you don't believe me, just drive around the countryside of South Georgia. How many abandoned and falling in houses and businesses will you see? Some of them have rusted cars in the lawn, don't they? That were very nice and new at one point. Yeah, I think of the house right next to mine where I live. The Braves know what I'm talking about. For one, I'm convinced it's haunted. Okay? It looks like it straight came out of Super Mario's Brothers. Remember when the ghosts were like floating around the outside? <laughs> it's falling in. Door, front door, don't close. There's a tree growing in the center of it. I'm sure it's infested with critters. And the roof is mostly gone. But you know what? At one point, just like all those other falling in houses and businesses and rusted cars, it was new and it was shiny and it was expensive and it was the prized possession of the owners. Now what are they? Only fit. I'd say it should be destroyed or burned up, but I'm afraid the critters will come to my house, right? But it's only fit for destruction. You know, it doesn't matter how much you paid for your house or your beach house, or your lake house, or your car, or your truck. Nor does it matter how nice it was when you bought it, nor now. It will eventually be fit only to be destroyed. And if the Lord comes back tomorrow, it will be burned up in the judgment. It'll be like it was never there. It won't even be ash. Now here's the question. Do you cling to the things that don't last more than you do the word of Christ? Do you find your meaning in life from stuff that will be reduced to ashes more than the word that gives life? Some of you are deriving your identity from things that are impermanent. Some of you don't cherish the word and hold on to it. Some of you are more devoted to your stuff than you are the word of Christ, but only one thing will last. What Jesus is saying is that even, look, look down at your feet. That ground that your feet are on, be gone. You look up at the sky, you see something that will eventually be gone. Observe the sun and the moon and the stars. Look through your telescope and see the planets and the galaxies and realize that they too will eventually be torn asunder by the cosmic Christ. Everything passes away. Rulers, nations, governments, professions, industries, families, possessions, political movements, houses, IRAs, 401ks, heirlooms, photos, books, cars, schools, degrees, careers, everything we cherish on earth will eventually be gone. The only thing that will endure, even the tearing asunder of the universe, are Jesus' word and his church. Those were Jesus' priority and legacy. They, they, they therefore have permits. Are they there? Are they your priority? Are you investing in what will last? That's my question. And I think that's Jesus' question. What will your legacy reveal matter most to you? You know, the kind of claim that Jesus makes that everything will pass away except his word, that's a remarkable claim of authority, isn't it? This is the kind of claim that only God can make. And indeed he does. For Jesus is the eternal God who entered time and space to secure for those who would give him his allegiance an eternal future. So if everything he's saying here is true, okay, be Pentecostal, Pentecostal for one minute and just answer this one question, okay? Do you believe that everything he's saying here is true? That was weak sauce, but I'll accept it. If creation is heading toward being undone and remade, and we've been living in the last days since the first Christmas, 
And if this return of Christ on clouds to judge the wicked and vindicate the redeemed is impending, then it follows, yes, that we live in light of those facts. Because again, if the atheist is correct, and the universe is nothing more than a cosmic accident, and we're just a collection of atoms bumping into each other with no rhyme or reason, and eventually the world will be vaporized, and thus when we die, there's nothing awaiting us, and all our sufferings were pointless, then yeah, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Live as a hedonist, for nothing has a point, and there is no hope. But if Jesus is correct, which I assume you believe, to be the case since you're here right now, then our lives must reflect that fact. If not, then the end of age, Jesus says it, will catch you like a trap. So in light of all these truths, Jesus commands disciples on how to live in the present. How then should we live? He tells us, look at your text in verse 34. Watch yourself, lest your heart be weighed down. Watch yourself. This is no passive watching, my friend. This is active watching. This is a rearranging of priorities and duties. This is an an intentional, ongoing examination of our lives that constantly asks, am I living in light of Christ's return and the end of the age, or will it catch me like a trap? Then, my friend, are you living in light of the end? It will come upon all who dwell upon the whole earth. That's what the text says. It could come at any time, and you can't escape it. Do you live in light of that? You know, Jonathan Edwards is a name you might be familiar with. When he was only 19 years old, he wrote a series of resolutions, but they were of a different kind than the ones we modern Americans typically make. Edwards would recite these resolutions every week, and among these resolutions were these, resolved, to never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would be not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Those are worthy resolutions, I think, don't you? And they fit into what Jesus is saying here. But why would Jesus give this warning to his disciples to be watchful of themselves and to be careful that their hearts not be weighed down by drunkenness and the cares of life? Because he knows that we are just as susceptible to turning to things to numb us of the heaviness of life as unbelievers are. It's because he knows that we are just as susceptible to being weighed down by the cares of life as unbelievers are. Which is why he calls for an active, intentional watchfulness. Passive watching won't do the trick. Now, he gives two main things to watch for and thus to not be weighed down and distracted by, drunkenness and the cares of life. Let's consider them quickly each in turn. So first, says Jesus, don't be weighed down by drunkenness and dissipation. This is the giving into indulgences of drinking and using substances and things to sort of numb yourself. You can't be watchful if you're drunk, can you? You can't be alert if you've dulled yourselves to the circumstances of life. You can't be ready when you've purposely distracted yourself with things of earth. This week, my sermon prep companion this week was Pink Floyd. We have Pink Floyd fans in here. Remember how, like a month ago, I told you don't listen to country music? Get rid of that, listen to Floyd, okay? Now, I was listening to, just on repeat, okay, this week, and I would think about this verse every time the song Comfortably Numb came on, that's from the Wall album, okay? Now, the whole album, you don't care about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The whole album is a, it's a concept album that has a big story, okay? And the main character is a mix between Roger Waters, the bass player, and the founding member, another founding member named Sid Barrett. And Sid Barrett became a drug addict, and he was out of the band, and he ended up in an asylum, So the song is about how Sid used to be so high backstage that they would have to call in what was known as a Dr. Feelgood who would inject him with something that would make him feel good enough to go and perform the concert, okay? So he would be comfortably numb. 
you see. He was comfortable enough to perform, but was mentally and physically numb and distant, which is why the chorus starts with, there is no pain, you are receding. He was numb to the pain, and the rest of the world felt as if it was receding into the distance. Now, many in our age have become comfortably numb in the sense that they find things that will dull them from the pains of life or will allow them to be distracted from their responsibilities or the need to deal with reality. And maybe that's true of some of you too. Jesus says drunkenness and dissipation, but it could be any number of things that numb and distract us or weigh us down or help us to try to escape. It might really be alcohol for you. Like maybe you don't drink much, but when you're really feeling the pinch of life, you allow yourself to indulge just a little bit more. Maybe it's drugs or some other substance. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's endless stream of television shows or movies. Maybe it's money or buying more things. Maybe it's relationships or sex. Maybe it's doom scrolling or excessive time spent on social media. Maybe it's gossip and slander because the more you can distract yourself with critiquing others, you don't have to deal with your own heart. Maybe it's hobbies, maybe it's money, maybe it's respect. It can be all kinds of different things. It really can be anything that we use to numb ourselves to the harsh realities of living in a fallen world or to keep our attention off the careful watching and honest evaluation of the world and ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean don't do things you enjoy or forsake entertainment, but they can turn from things that we enjoy into things that we need in order to deaden ourselves to the difficulties and pains of life things that we give ourselves over to that keep us from the word and getting more of Christ. But that's not the only thing that can weigh us down, right? And just distract us and cause us to not be ready for the end according to Jesus. What's the next thing he says? The cares of life is the other. Do you feel that one? You think about it. What will typically get you away from devotion to Christ? What will keep you from regularly gathering with the local church? What will keep you from devotion to Christ's word, which will endure forever? What will keep you from obedience and from taking up your cross every day? What will keep you from following Christ in a costly way? For we comfortable Western people, it likely will not be threats of violence and persecution. It will be the cares of life. You know, I've been a pastor long enough to know that the reason most people who withdraw from regularly gathering with the church, do so because they become too busy with other things. Whether it be travel, vacations, leisure, travel ball, work that they don't need to do and the like. It's the cares of life. It's it's things we take on voluntarily. It's not like our brothers in China and Iran who can't gather because they might lose their heads. Although they still try to gather anyway, don't they? For us, it's the cares of life that have weighed us down, so far down that they've risen to the supreme devotion over even Jesus. Kevin DeYoung was right, wasn't he, when he said, busyness kills more Christians than bullets. He says, for most of us, it isn't heresy or rank apostasy that will derail our profession of faith. It's the worries of life. And that's kind of the insidiousness of it, right? Like, the cares of life are day-to-day kinds of things that are involved with simply living. Yet what they could do to us, if they are not properly placed, they could cause us to be complacent to the things of God. Good things, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, can become ultimate things and therefore become functional deities that bump our devotion to the Lord. Darrell Box said on this topic, the issue is not that such things are insignificant, but they are not to have first place and thus destroy one's personal spiritual reception of the word. And is this not why we need to keep watch, right? Because we could justify in our hearts and minds why we do these things. Why we allow the cares of life to weigh us down. And it can happen to anyone. No one is impervious to it. Anyone can become more in love and infatuated with and taken in by the world over and above Jesus. Do you remember Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy? You remember what he said at the end? He said he mentions a former fellow worker named Demas. And this is what he says. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. 
Why did Demas desert him? He got taken in by the love of the world, by the cares of life. Do you remember the parable of the soils from chapter 8? The seed that fell among the thorns didn't take root, and thus it didn't bear fruit. And why? This is what it said. Because they were choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. That's a life that's weighed down. John Piper says this, the pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking, and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. That's kind of the thing, right? The cares of life are things that are common to people. And that's why Jesus says we need to always be watching. If it didn't need to be watched for in our hearts, Jesus wouldn't have said it. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking you have a pretty great balance between the ordinary cares of life and watchfulness, you're either prideful or self-deceived. We should not come to a text like this with a swaggering confidence that says we're doing pretty good, thank you very much. So I didn't spend all week with this text and conclude that I was crushing it and I get to be watchful for a living. We must not make presumption of grace or assumption of delays of the end an occasion for pride or sin. Think of the disciples. They heard these words from the lips of Jesus and They're in the most important week in human history. Do you know what happened on Thursday night? Jesus told them, keep watch. Does that sound familiar? And pray. And they kept what? Falling asleep. And Jesus goes off a ways and he prays and he's in great agony. And he's sweating drops of blood. And he comes back and these jabronis are snoozing away. They knew What happens when you don't watch and pray and yet they slept while the Lord was in agony? Are you, my friend, asleep? Are you weighed down by the cares of life? Ask that in your heart. Are you going to put on pretenses in your own heart? Has your desire for the comfort and the ease of the American dream lulled you to sleep? Are you watching yourself Are you honest and willing to pay the price when you see that you are being distracted by these things? They aren't good things, but they aren't ultimate things. Do you know this? Satan doesn't mind if you aren't a great sinner. As long as your focus is off Jesus and you're unprepared for his return, living as if this life lasts forever and as if this world was your home. He doesn't care if you're tidy and put together and moral, if you could be distracted. He likes when we pursue the cares of life if they distract us from Christ. He doesn't mind if we're comfortable as long as our comfort is more our aim than selfless obedience to our Lord. He doesn't mind delayed obedience as long as it is just that, delayed. As Alistair Begg said, the devil's favorite word is tomorrow. I don't think Satan even minds our getting caught up in end time speculation as long as it's keeping us busy pontificating rather than being watchful of our own souls and lives. Whatever will distract us from active watching and obedience, Satan applauds, even if it's wrapped in the cloak of religion and theology. We must be careful. We are being lulled to sleep into rote religion or unduly wrapped in the cares of this world because then what Will we say when Jesus returns and we are living lives and busy doing things that are indistinguishable from our unbelieving neighbors and thus have allowed those things to put obedience and busyness for the kingdom to the fringes of our lives? What will we say? I mean, he warned us, didn't he? Do you remember? Of course you do. The scene in Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian and Hopeful were nearing the end of their journey to the celestial city, they had to pass through a place called the Enchanted Ground. It was called this because the ground made people who passed through drowsy. See? And rumor had it, if you fell asleep in the Enchanted Ground, you may never wake up. See? The Enchanted Ground hid three dangers personified. 
simple sloth and presumption. In other words, complacency, laziness, and presuming upon salvation to such a point that it becomes an occasion to sin. And there's the reason why it lay at the end of the journey to the celestial city. Because the enemy figures the pilgrim will be weary from the travels and want to sleep, and many did. Christian, are you being lulled to sleep by this world? Are you weary? Have the cares of this world taken your eyes off where everything is ultimately heading and made you slothful for the things of God or presumptive upon grace? That is a hard thing to ask ourselves, but I love you too much to see your souls be wasted away with the comforts of this world. Have you forgotten that this world is not your home? Have you forgotten what will last even when the ground your feet on are gone. But Jesus knows that we can't be watchful, not give it to numbing and distractions, not allow the cares of life to weigh us down by our sheer grit and determination. Matter of fact, if it depends on our own willpower and strength and ability, we'd surely fail. But look at verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have enough strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Was praying at all times, if not an admittance of our inability. It is an admittance of need to be dependent on God rather than self. It is a plea for strength because you know in yourselves you have none. That's why Augustine wisely said, when God is our strength, it is strength indeed. When our strength is our own, it is only weakness. One can only watch by praying, which makes one prepared for the end because it's a plea for strength from God to not be weighed down by drunkenness or the cares of life. Now, there's a prayer that's praying in the will of God. Now, there's a prayer where you know the answer will always be yes. Preparedness for then when Christ returns depends on your watchfulness now. Don't you see it? And our lives show whether or not we're ready. Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, people might show by their lives that they are unready and unprepared for Jesus' coming. If this occurs, they will not be rewarded but punished. Keep alert through regular prayer, for in prayer believers recognize they need help to stay true to the Lord. The focus for believers is on the need to persevere and to guard our own hearts. We must beware the lethargy and letting sin reign in our hearts and lives. Satan uses these circumstances to sow doubts in our hearts. We must pray regularly that we will continue in the faith so that we will stand before the Son of Man on the last day. We need strength of the Lord in order to watch, and we need the strength of the Lord to stand before him at the end of the age. We need him for everything, don't we? For salvation, for endurance, for sustaining, for strength, to withstand the onslaught of the enemy, to stand before him clothed in righteousness on the last day. We need him for everything, and he stands before us today offering to be our everything. Here we are at the beginning of another year. What will 2024 hold? Who could say? You know, I was thinking about this. People stood like I'm standing on the first Sunday of 2020, and they gave a bunch of sermons called Vision 2020, and none of them included a global pandemic because they didn't know, because we're limited and frail people. Who could say where 2024 is leading? I don't know. Jesus could return this year. He could return another seven generations. He could wait another thousand years, or he could come back tomorrow. I don't know these things, but I do know this. At some point, everything we see will be gone. At some point, we will all stand before Jesus. At some point, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. At some point, Jesus will establish the kingdom in its fullness with a new heaven and new earth, and all of history is bending towards this Jesus because he's the center of everything. And I also know Jesus didn't leave us in the dark on how to live in between the times in anticipation of his return. And how we live will be the fruit of whether or not we believe what Jesus said is true. 
Will we live as functional atheists or will we live watchful, sober lives, not weighed down by the cares and anxiety of life in hopeful anticipation of the day when every sad thing will come untrue? My friend, if Christ were to come tomorrow, would you be ready? Do you know him? When he returns, when you are before him, which you will be, will he be a terror for you or a time of rejoicing? Will he be your judge or your vindicator? And if he did come back tomorrow, would he see you numbing yourself or would he see you sober-minded, watchful, ready, trusting in his great might? Let me give you one more illustration. We'll land this thing, all right? Earlier, I mentioned Sam from Lord of the Rings. Well, in the movie version of the two towers, towards the end, Frodo says that he can't complete the task. So this happens before the seed that I mentioned earlier. He said, I can't, I can't complete the task. It's too difficult. Have you ever felt like that before? Can't go on. And this is what Sam says. Okay, listen. He says, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and dangers they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass, the new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in these stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. Frodo asked him, what are we holding on to? And Sam said that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Now what he said it's true for us. Life is hard. Darkness perplexes and burdens us. There's pain and suffering and injustice everywhere. The schemes of the devil are so crafty that we could be ensnared by the normal day-to-day activities of life. But the Christian finds solace and strength amidst it all because Jesus promised vindication in the end and his words are more solid and long-lasting than the galaxies. He has assured us that he will win in the end. And so when Frodo asks, what are we holding on to? The answer for us isn't that there's good in this world, but that the only one who is good came into the world to show God to us to show that he sees and he hears and he cares and he loves us and that because of the work of God's Christ, death is defeated, history is going somewhere and it is towards him coming again to make all things new so we live in light of that. And we rely on his mighty arms and we have hope. 